You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 9th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, Russia and the US have exchanged prisoners. Do you know where I'm heading to? No. No? No. 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 You fly back home? To, to the US. To the US. Okay. Brittany Griner's lawyers give her the good news. We'll look at the lines of communication between the two countries and ask if Russia is scaling back aggression for the winter. Then the Finnish and Turkish foreign ministers have been meeting to address Turkey's reluctance to allow Finland's accession to NATO. Plus... European parliamentary systems, the sort that you have in Britain or Germany or most of Europe, don't have anything resembling a primary because you're extracting someone who's already in the system. Our Washington correspondent examines Joe Biden's proposal to shake up preliminary voting systems. British lawmakers have given the go-ahead to the country's first new coal mine in 30 years. We'll ask how that affects the UK's commitment to halt climate change. And a delegation of writers from the US has visited Ukraine to bear witness to the cultural destruction of the country and the heroic fight back from authors and artists. We'll hear what they saw and how we can all be part of the reconstruction. With a rustle through the papers and a hit of business news, that's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. Russia and the US have completed a prisoner swap. Brittany Griner, an American basketball player, has been traded for Victor Boot, a Russian former arms dealer jailed in the United States. Russian news agencies said that the exchange took place at Abu Dhabi Airport in the United Arab Emirates on Thursday and that the exchange was brokered by the UAE. James Rogers, author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin, joins me with more. Uh, James, thanks for coming on the show. Why was Brittany Griner in prison? She was in prison uh, in Russia because she was found um, to have some um, vape cartridges containing cannabis oil in her luggage when she arrived uh, in the Russian Federation earlier this year. Um, That carried a penalty of some 10 years in jail under Russian law, uh, and she was required to serve that and and had been, in fact, in a penal colony uh, until this release deal, which had been speculated about, but, you know, people weren't really sure it was heading in that direction after she was moved to um, a a more harsher institution um, some weeks ago. Uh, People had hoped that this would happen, and indeed it did yesterday. And what can you tell us about Victor Booth? Victor Boot um, was known variously as as the merchant of death, amongst other things. I mean, I think the most interesting thing about Victor Boot is it seems beyond dispute that he was an arms dealer. You know, various reports accuse him uh, of supplying um, warlords in, in various parts of the world, including Africa, Asia and South America. Um, He was eventually caught um, by a U.S. sting in a hotel in Bangkok in Thailand um, in 2008. And two years later, he was extradited. And he spent the last 10 years uh, in jail um, in the United States. Um, 
the interesting thing about him, I think, is um, while his criminal activity seems beyond dispute, he was serving um, his jail sentence in the United States for conspiring to support terrorists. The interest that the Russian state has shown in his release, this is not really the kind of you know, extensive use of state resources that you would see to free somebody who's simply a criminal. It strongly suggests to me, and I think to a lot of other observers, that he may um, have some ties to the Russian intelligence services. And what do we know about the negotiations for this exchange? Well, this is very interesting, actually, Georgina, because um, the White House has said that it was a US-Russia deal, um, that it was negotiated between the two of them. But actually, um, the UAE, obviously, where the, the prisoner swap actually took place, um, uh, and Saudi Arabia issued a joint statement saying that they had been involved. Um, and it was interesting to note that President Biden did thank the UAE for their assistance, but he didn't mention um, Saudi Arabia. Now, you might remember a few weeks ago, back in September, um, there were some British prisoners of war, some of whom had been serving in the Ukrainian armed services uh, and who had been captured by separatists in the east of the country, and one of whom, at least one of whom had actually been sentenced to death. They were eventually released under a deal that had been brokered by the Saudis. So it's possible that some sort of involvement, but if that's the case, uh, then the White House is not publicly giving the Saudis uh, any credit for it. Uh, and I mean, what does this tell us then about the channels of communication still operational between Russia and the US? Well, they do exist. I mean, there were meetings between the heads of intelligence recently as well. I mean, I think those were probably aimed more at averting some sort of uh, nuclear disaster in relation to the conflict in Ukraine. So there are there's always means of communicating, you know, even even as diplomatic relations sour to, to ways that few people thought they would ever see, certainly in the post-Cold War era. Um, there do need to be lines of communication open between um the United States and Russia, you know, particularly in relation to the war in Ukraine and indeed in, in relation to this. Um, I think it's possible, of course, you know, it, this is not, this was not um, the full deal, of course, from the United States point of view. There is a man also called Paul Whelan, who holds US nationality, amongst others, uh, who has been in jail in Russia since 2018 on charges of espionage. Um, and President Biden yesterday regretted that he had been able to, unable to make um, Mr. Whelan, who denies the charges uh, against him, has been, been unable to make Mr. Whelan uh, part of this exchange deal. A lot of people were hoping that uh, for somebody as high profile as Victor Boot, the United States might be able to get um, both of their uh, citizens, Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner, home. Mm. Uh, now, Vladimir Putin gave an address on Wednesday in which he compared himself to Peter the Great and he laid out Russia's ambitions for Ukraine. What did he say? Well, he's talking about, um, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting if you look at his rhetoric over the last nine, <coughs> excuse me, nine, almost 10 months that um, the war has been going on, you know, to begin with. And, and we, we discussed this previously about the leaked intelligence documents that seem to have been uh, the source for that um, Rusi assessment uh, we were discussing last week about the state of the Russian uh, war in Ukraine. The, the initial ambitions were hugely, were, were, were very significant, you know, in terms of replacing the government of Ukraine, taking large swathes of territory. Um, and those have really been tempered, you know, by reality on the battlefield. Russia no longer seems to talk in terms of um, replacing uh, the administration of President Zelensky. And while um, President Putin did announce in September the annexation of, um, of four regions of uh, 
of Ukraine. In practice, uh, the Russian armed forces have been unable to deliver on that and they don't actually control the territory which they now claim as part of the Russian Federation. I think in the longer term, we need to look at what point at which um, Vladimir Putin can say that his campaign has been a success, that the war in Ukraine has been a success, and he can declare some sort of victory. Um, and obviously, if we look at the way that um, the rhetoric has changed, the Russian propaganda has changed domestically, there's been a far greater influence, a, a, a far greater insistence um, in uh, recent weeks on this idea that Russia is actually fighting against NATO and the whole West. And I think this may, in the longer term, be a way of preparing Russian public opinion for the fact that the initial military objectives, such as they were thought to be in February, are not going to be achieved. Mm. Uh, I mean, on Thursday, Russian forces attacked settlements in eastern Ukraine. That was from both the ground and the air. But I think, is it quite telling then that they're, they're keeping those attacks to areas that they already hold? They're keeping them. It seems that, you know, as far as one can tell, that the ambitions here are much more limited than they were. And remember, you know, that um, as a lot of people have mentioned recently, the winter is coming a very, very, you know, harsh time of year. Ukraine is obviously, you know, much of it, you know, enjoys quite a mild climate in the summer, but it does, you know, have very, very cold winter temperatures. And that's going to significantly change the conditions and and will, you know, the armies will rely upon having the proper equipment to fight in sub-zero temperatures, you know, as low as minus 15 or minus 20 degrees Celsius. So I think we will see um, a change what's coming up. I don't think we can expect to see any significant military changes uh, in the coming weeks, um, largely, as I say, because of the weather. But that doesn't mean that, um, you know, we've in any sense reached stalemate. I think both sides believe that they can still um, take territory from the other. And President Zelensky of Ukraine has made it clear that, you know, and I think Ukrainian public opinion, after all, they suffered there, will find it very difficult um, to settle for anything which would suggest that the Ukrainian armed forces had not done absolutely everything they could to recapture uh, territory lost, not just during um, this particular round of fighting, but also that annexed in 2014. James, thank you very much indeed. That is James Rogers there. Just coming up to 12 minutes past 10 in Ankara, that's uh, 7.12 here in London. Finland's bid to join NATO is being held up by Turkey, who says that it will continue to oppose Finland's membership of the bloc until it abandons an arms embargo on Ankara. Defence ministers of the two countries met yesterday to discuss this. Well, I'm joined now by Ruth Michelson, a journalist based in Istanbul, and Paul Rogers, uh, international security advisor at Open Democracy. Good morning to you both. Why does Finland have an arms embargo on Turkey? Well, I mean, first of all, that's a good question. It's worth uh, realizing that this arms embargo is largely symbolic. This is not a country that was exporting large amounts of arms to Turkey. This was an arms embargo imposed in 2019 following um, a Turkish military operation against um, Kurdish militants in northern Syria. Um, And what Turkey has said since June, when there was a memorandum of understanding signed between Sweden, uh, Finland, and and Turkey was that um, Turkey has imposed a a list of demands that it wants met in order for Sweden and Finland to be able to join NATO. And frankly, it seems like this demand about the arms embargo is part of 
um, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, seeing what he can get, seeing how much of this list of demands he can ask, uh, he can demand will be met um, in order for these countries to join NATO, um, showing that he can uh, control the timetable. Um, and this, uh, this renewed demand that Finland uh, lift this arms embargo that seems in, in you know it seems largely symbolic is is really uh, is really part of that demand. Mm. Uh, Paul, Sweden applied for membership of NATO at the same time as Finland. How has that country acceded to Turkish demands? Well, it's difficult to say how it has acceded to them. The point is that uh, Finland is. And and um, Sweden are both being blocked by uh, Erdogan's view, and he's maintaining that uh, through thick and thin longer than people expected. It's worth saying that, as Ruth saying, there were there are other issues as well. One of the things that Turkey would like out of this is uh, the Americans to be more forthcoming in replacing the Turkish air forces' aged. F-16 interceptors. They want a more modern version of that, or maybe even a, a more modern plane entirely. So it's part of a larger parcel uh, of asks or wants, if you like. Um, the issue, I think, is really quite complicated because Turkey has been very active in intervening across the borders in both Syria and in Iraq. And in many ways, they've been uh, attacking uh, Kurdish areas where the Tur- Kurds in the past have actually been assisting Western forces in their facing down ISIS, particularly in the fairly recent past. So in some ways, what Turkey is doing there is counterproductive as far as you might call NATO interests and certainly United States interests. And this further complicates how Washington is going to handle this. Obviously, you have the meeting between Cajon and Adakar, the respected defence ministers, yesterday. Kahonen um, is using phrases like, well, we might explore this on a case-by-case basis and dovetail an agreement with Sweden, which indicates that the, the Finns are prepared to move to an extent, but less so, I think, than Sweden, where you've had a recent change of government and something of a move to the right. So we're really in a sort of a, a middle phase at the moment. One's guess is there may be some sort of diplomatic agreement on this. And it's interesting that the foreign secretaries of both Finland and Sweden have been in Washington meeting Biden's people. And I think the Americans are now trying to put pressure on Turkey. But it won't be easy because given Erdogan's so many domestic problems with the the inflation and the rest, this is one of the few cards he has uh, to maintain what you might call political status outside the country and possibly to some extent within as well. Mm. I mean, Ruth, this is also about Kurdish militants. Why are Why is that so important to Turkey? Well, Turkey um, has been uh, fighting a struggle for a long time against uh, Kurdish militants in the south of Turkey and in northern Syria that they regard as as terrorists. Um, and we've seen lots of uh, inflammatory statements coming out of Ankara about the idea that Sweden particularly and, and Finland as well are harboring terrorists in some way, which uh, is part of their demand that they want uh, a list of people that they claim are are terrorists extradited from uh, from Sweden and from Finland. We saw recently that um, Sweden actually extradited um, uh, a Kurdish man who allegedly had uh, links to the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party, which 
Turkey regards um, as a terrorist organization. At the same time, there are people on the that list uh, that Turkey wants extradited that includes a journalist, at least. It includes people who are allegedly members of other groups that Turkey considers hostile, like the Gulen movement. So what we're seeing here is that this isn't necessarily about Turkey's animus towards Kurdish militants as much as it is about Ankara seeing you know, how much they can get from Sweden and Finland. Sweden has shown um, great willing, it seems, especially with the new uh, change of government to accede to Turkey's demands to try and get this moving quickly. And Turkey, it seems, is feeling empowered and wants to see how long they can set the pace of this, how much of their demands uh, can be met. Um, and, set, you know, are showing that um, basically they want this to happen on their schedule. Uh, of course, it's it's not just Turkey. Hungary is also yet to to ratify Sweden and Finland's membership. Paul has bu- has Budapest put specific demands on the, on the two countries? Uh, not in the way that uh, essentially you've seen with uh, with Turkey. Uh, although one senses that behind the scenes there will be demands being made. But I think in in this particular case, um, Hungary is less of a problem because it it does lie very much with Turkey. And if some sort of agreement is reached with Turkey, which may be difficult, then I think Hungary will just come on board as well. One of the things I think is worth mentioning is that Finland is more important in a strategic sense because of its huge common border with Russia. Um, Sweden doesn't have that sort of border at all, although obviously the Baltic Sea is, is very important as far as this whole affair is concerned. But for Finland, it really is important to have it on board as far as the NATO people think. Uh, and the end result of that, I think, is that um, uh, there's going to be pressure on Finland to some extent uh, to make some concessions. But the Finns are really rather reluctant to do this because they feel they're being pressurised to an extent that they don't necessarily accept is valid. And so this is where you have the complexity of it. And it doesn't seem to be much leeway or, or much movement from Washington on this at the moment. Obviously, you'd had the meeting with the foreign ministers yesterday, but there aren't really many indications that got very far in terms of being able to put direct pressure on Turkey. And this is, as Ruth was saying, this is one of the few areas where there are sort of cards in Erdogan's hand, and I think he will continue to use them. But the guess is that, you know, over the next month or so, some sort of weak compromise will be worked out. And this is why I think the use of terms like case-by-case examples uh, by the Finnish Defence Minister, Kahonen, uh, are an indication of the direction that it might take. Mm. Ruth, do you think that Erdogan is playing for time and is planning to give his consent shortly before the upcoming election? And how would that benefit his domestic agenda? Well, Erdogan... Excuse me. Erdogan wants to show that he um, is is you know in control of the time schedule both uh, internationally and domestically, and he's quite adept at using um, successes on the international stage as um, a way of garnering support at home, and so that does play into the upcoming election. He has. You know, he's trying to demonstrate that he can be an international statesman um, and that the people looking to challenge him in the upcoming election who are doing still doing um, pretty well in the polls. Most of them beat him in a head to head race, which could happen. Um, You know, he wants to show that they wouldn't be capable of this 
kind of diplomatic maneuvering that uh, that he um, is so fond of doing. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, it plays into the election. Um, it's not, I mean, it's not clear how long he would like to stall for time. And, you know, it might be that he would prefer to focus on electoral concerns as we get closer to um, the set date of the election. He could move it forward, but it's due to be in June of next year. Um, and with all of this, um, you know, Erdogan wants to show that it can happen on a schedule that's convenient to him, where it's going to garner him success. Um, and so it's quite possible that this could happen closer to the election. But I'm Unfortunately, that's all up to one individual. And how dangerous is that, Paul, uh, to, to have one country uh, really dictating uh, all of this, uh, that, that a sole NATO member can bog down alliance priorities at this very critical time? I think part of it goes back to the whole idea that NATO, the big issue of a new member joining, has to be reached by consensus, not by vote. And um, this is what gives uh, Erdogan his strength. And it's a matter, I suppose, of, of geography, basically. I mean, Turkey does have this key role uh, because of the control of the Bosphorus uh, and a- access to the Black Sea. And because of that, it's a very unusual position to be in. Uh, NATO prefers to stick with this whole idea of um, doing it by consensus, particularly on the sometimes a vexed issue of expanded membership. Uh, uh, but it doesn't really want to lose that. It probably can't afford to use, lose that. But in this one instant, uh, and the double geography of both the Bosphorus and the Black Sea and uh, Finland and the long border with Russia, this actually plays a much bigger function uh, in international politics than we normally get. And we're stuck with this. Yes, I would agree with Ruth, it'll be a compromise. It probably will be somewhere near the next election. But beyond that, I'm afraid this is, is frankly unpredictable. Paul Rogers and Ruth Michelson there. Thank you both very much. Still to come on the programme, Britain plans to open the first new coal mine in three decades. And we hear how Russia is trying to obliterate Ukrainian culture. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. For five decades, the U.S. state of Iowa has been famous for holding the first in the nation nominating contest for presidential candidates of either political party. But last week, the rulemaking arm of the Democratic National Committee voted to hand off responsibility for kicking off the Democratic Party's nominating process to South Carolina, a state with a more diverse electorate. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack has been exploring the legacy of the Iowa caucus and why a simple change in the nomination calendar has been such a difficult decision to make. And in New Hampshire, if you give me the same chance that Iowa did tonight, I will be that president for America. I want especially to thank New Hampshire. Over the last week, I listened to you and in the process... I found my own voice. All of you know we won the popular vote in Iowa. We won the New Hampshire primary. 
And according to three networks in the AP, we have now won the Nevada caucus. Thank you, thank you, thank you, South Carolina! As an American political reporter living overseas in Europe for many years, I've lost track of how many times I've had to explain the presidential primary process to friends and colleagues, why the two political parties in the United States can take as long as six months to decide who they're going to nominate as their next presidential candidate, instead of having party affiliates across the nation vote all at once, and why, oh why, do we let tiny, obscure states like Iowa in the Midwest and New Hampshire in the Northeast go first, each and every time, as if they have some special insights into choosing the nation's next president? And as bizarre as this system might be, My basic answer to these questions is always the same. The primaries can succeed in nominating relatively unknown candidates. The American system is based on first getting the attention of your party and the voters, its constituents, and then making yourself a viable candidate and then saying, look, I can be competitive in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and on and on and on and on. This is Charles Bierbauer, longtime senior Washington and foreign correspondent for CNN and a former dean of the College of Mass Communications and Information Studies at the University of South Carolina. European parliamentary systems, the sort that you have in Britain or Germany or most of Europe, don't have anything resembling a primary because you're extracting someone who's already in the system. It's not like Jimmy Carter going to Iowa and say, hi, I'm Jimmy Carter and I want to be your president. And by golly, his appearance at the Iowa caucuses made a difference. That's because the primary process allows lesser-known candidates like a Jimmy Carter back in the day or Barack Obama in 2008 to quite literally roam a small state, knocking on doors, going to diners and coffee houses and convincing voters person to person that they are the right candidate for the job. And as Bierbauer explains, not everyone is actually good at that. 1984, when Senator John Glenn, the former astronaut, you had to think, John Glenn can't miss as a candidate. And I would watch John Glenn go to factory gates in snowy, cold places in Iowa, and people didn't care about who he was. And the Glenn campaign just sort of petered out. And there are surprises along the way in the American primary system. When people you think are can't miss candidates, miss. And people you think can't possibly succeed start to gather attention. But that still leaves the final part of those common questions. Why Iowa? Why New Hampshire? And let me say right up front, I'm pro-caucus, I'm pro-Iowa being first, So I, and, and I'm very used to defending the Iowa caucuses. This is Timothy Hagel, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa, who's literally written the book on the Iowa caucuses. And he makes the case in a number of different ways. One thing is that Iowa is still a more purple state than many people think. In presidential elections, they went for Obama twice in 08 and 12, then they went for Trump. And Democrats could really lose out long term, or at least a longer term, if we're not first in the nation. And then there's the caucus, this arcane process in a couple of states like Iowa, where instead of just going to vote as you do in a primary or a general election, people actually show up at locations to debate for and against their candidates. 
They then go and literally stand together in corners of a room to indicate which candidate they support. It might seem outdated, but for Tim Hagel, it's also a sign of passion. Part of the caucuses, unlike a primary, is you've got to convince people to actually show up on some Monday night at usually 7 o'clock, usually in February, sometimes in January, so potentially be cold, maybe the weather's not that great, definitely dark. So that grassroots organizing is extremely important for the parties to get their activists, to get their voters, to get their message out. So Iowa has passion, activism, and independent-minded voters going for it. But there is one simple thing even Tim Hagel has to admit Iowa does not have, and that is a diverse voter base. Which brings us to the point of this report. Because the Democratic Party and Joe Biden, they've proposed basically dethroning Iowa and instead elevating different states for the first time in decades. Under Joe Biden's plan, the opening primary would be in South Carolina, a state that gives African Americans a greater say in the nomination process while still being small enough in size to have that diner-visiting, door-knocking appeal for a new candidate. South Carolina would then be followed by New Hampshire and Nevada, which has a high Latino population. These would then be followed by Michigan and Georgia. The general idea is for these five primaries to better reflect America's diverse electorate as it stands today. That's something Mindy Romero, founder of the Center for Inclusive Democracy at the University of California, believes could actually make a small difference. I'm not saying or agreeing that the order that's being suggested is the right order, but I think generally attending to questions around and concerns around diversity matters. It matters for groups that are going to get more representation in the early process, but it actually matters for everyone because you want candidates to, in a sense, be vetted, right, by a a larger set of Americans that represent not just by race, ethnicity, but just more differing lived experiences and see how candidates conduct their outreach, how they message to those groups, and certainly how they resonate. Mindy Romero says that the lack of outreach to minority voters is really one of the key problems in America today, because it feeds into a lack of engagement in the political process. And while she likes the idea of more diverse states moving up the primary calendar, there is a danger of this being a sort of token gesture. We have lots of research in the field that tells us that if you're a voter of color, even when you're registered to vote, maybe even have voted in the past, but just aren't a frequent diehard voter, you are much less likely to get contacted from campaigns and candidates. In other words, the Democratic Party needs to put in the real work of outreach to minorities and not just move up a state's primary for political purposes. And those political purposes? Well, sadly, they're all too obvious to any political insider. Here's Charles Bierbauer again. Biden did not win the Iowa caucuses in 2020, but he certainly won the South Carolina primary. And if you're Joe Biden and you're running for re-election and you want to eliminate any possible challengers, pretenders, why not knock them out in the first round rather than the third or the fourth round? And so the race for 2024 begins. For Monocle in Washington, I'm Chris Chermack. Many thanks there to Chris Chermack. The decision to change the primary calendar still has to be formalised in a vote by the full Democratic National Committee in the new year. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. 
European Union interior ministers have voted to accept Croatia into the 26-nation border-free Schengen zone, but to reject Romania and Bulgaria. This comes after the European Commission had backed all three countries as meeting the criteria necessary for joining the zone. The US House of Representatives has given final congressional approval to legislation that provides federal recognition of same-sex marriages, a measure born out of concern that the Supreme Court could reverse its support for legal recognition of such relationships. The new legislation will not bar states from blocking same-sex or interracial marriages if the Supreme Court allows them to do so. And Japan, Britain and Italy have created a deal which will see the three countries combining their next-generation fighter jets projects. Confirmation of the plan comes days after companies in France, Germany and Spain reached an agreement for the next phase of a rival initiative. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. The British government has approved plans for the country's first new coal mine in 30 years, sparking enormous controversy at home and abroad. Well, Joe Lowe is a senior reporter at Climate Home and joins me now. Joe, tell us about the proposal for this mine. Yeah, well, it's been in the works for a few years. They want to build this coal mine to um, make coal for steel. Um, and they, they've just, uh, Michael Gove has just signed it off. And I mean, it's gone really badly down internationally you know there's a lot of people around the world accusing the uk of hypocrisy now um, because the uk has spent the last three years going around the world asking countries uh, to phase out or phase down coal that was the big push at cop 26 at glasgow uh, last year and now all the people who've been pushing for that for so long doing a lot of hard work they look like complete hypocrites and that's going to really affect the uh, the uk's power to influence countries like vietnam which um, next week is supposed to be announcing a possible kind of clean coal to clean energy deal. And that's supposed to be announced in Brussels. And I imagine that the Vietnamese negotiators are going to be holding up this article about this new coal mine and saying, why, why aren't you doing it if you want us to do it? I um, thought, hadn't Britain phased out the use of coal in line with our climate change goals? Yeah, almost. It's uh, yeah, well on the way to doing that for, for electricity. Uh, but this is coal for steel making. And I think it's largely going to be exported to European steel plants. And that, that's another point. You know, the, the world needs to, it, the world can easily move away from coal for electricity, but doing it for steel is a lot harder. And we need a lot of research and development and we need subsidies and we need the steel companies to get their act together and um, make steel with green hydrogen and reduce the amount of coking coal we need. I mean, we know that coal is the dirtiest of all fossil fuels, producing almost twice the emission of natural gas. How are supporters of this plan backing up their argument that coal would be lower carbon than than alternatives? Uh, well, they, they basically say there are no viable alternatives. And uh, the planning inspector said, you know, we can't go out on the limb of, you know, thinking that hydrogen is going to be viable at a large scale in the next few years to make steel. Um yeah, so they're saying this is going to be needed for the next few decades and it might as well be UK coal than, than other coal. They say our coal's cleaner. They say it's going to be net zero coal mine, uh, which completely ignores the main thing, which is the missions for burning the coal. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, one of the other things they're saying is that it will create 500 new jobs in the sector. But are there not other ways of creating jobs in, in the green technology sector? Yeah, there are, there are definitely. I think there were some figures out about how many jobs you could create in Cumbria with um, with green energy. Um, I guess 
you know supporters of this mine would say why why can't we have have both and I, I think that's a valid argument and um but you know there's also a lot of unemployment in coal mines coal mining areas all around the world you know you're not going to get much sympathy in vietnam or india for saying that there's unemployment in cumbria you know there's, there's unemployment in lots of places yeah i mean you 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 mentioned vietnam how has the rest of the wider world reacted to this plan um well, there's been anger from particularly from small islands i think you know the most climate threatened uh, nations uh, the Prime Minister Fiji, Frank Baini Marama, said, is this the future we fought for under the Glasgow Pact? Fossil fuels should be phased out, not up. And, you know, in emerging economies like like India, you know, people are saying, accusing the UK of crocodile tears. Adult Sharma cried when um, when it got watered down from phasing out coal to phasing down coal. And, you know, now here we are and we're building a new coal mine. So there's a lot of a lot of anger at the UK. Do you think that there's a chance that it might not go ahead? I think there's quite a big chance of that. I think the the campaigners are going to challenge it. I mean, I don't know that, but I, I expect that. And I think, you know, we might have a Labour government in a few years. I think that they've opposed it. So, yeah, very much up in the air. But the damage has been done, really, to the UK's international reputation and to the, the diplomatic push against coal. Joe, thank you very much indeed. That's Joe Lowe from Climate Home there. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's 17.39 in Brisbane, 8.39 in Zurich, and we'll continue now with today's papers. Joining me in the studio is Latika Burke, who's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Good morning to you, Latika. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, Now, it's all over the papers. We cannot ignore it. Uh, It has been billed as the biggest cultural moment, the biggest television moment, an unprecedented and in-depth documentary series (laughs) on Netflix. I'm talking, of course, of Harry and Meghan. It previewed last night first three episodes. Did you watch it? I did. I did. All three episodes at 8.01am yesterday morning when they dropped, but I was actually reporting on it for my paper. And there was, a let me assure you, a lot of interest in this story. So people do poo-poo and say, we're not very interested in the royals. We're certainly not interested in Harry and Meghan, but let me assure you, they click, click, click. Um, Yes, it is all over the front pages today. Even I'm surprised by how big of coverage this is getting because very little was said in that documentary. But Georgina, we should keep in mind it's a very slow news week. Yeah. And it's not an issue we're going to talk at length about today. (laughs) No, but but just extraordinary the appetite for the media. I mean, in terms of of the content of the documentary, which was a lot of blaming of the press, clearly they have a point because uh, the media just can't seem to get enough or people can't seem to get enough of of this story. Look, I think this is a big problem for Netflix. Uh, It's rumoured they paid around £100 to the Sussexes for this documentary. And I think what's going on is a lot of 
hate reading. And there's a lot of people who want to read about Harry and Meghan and what they've said and want to criticise them, but they're not going to give them the satisfaction of, say, clicking a stream on Spotify, on Meghan's own podcast, or in this case for Netflix, perhaps not actually loading up the story itself and watching it. The other problem for Netflix is that this documentary is dead boring. It's three hours worth of TV, another three hours to come, and it's mind-bogglingly boring. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of good TV out there, and actually the streaming giants are in a bit of disarray at the moment, struggling to get eyeballs on TV the way they did during the pandemic. I think there are two fundamental problems here for Netflix. Let's see the ratings. I could be wrong, but that's certainly my hunch. Yeah. Uh, Let's move on to uh, domestic affairs here in Britain. Uh, People trying to get away may be prevented from doing so. Uh, This is strikes. It's not only... uh, border forces, but we're also looking uh, at uh, NHS staff uh, and, uh, I mean, it's across the board. It, it, this this is the worst it's been since, people say, since 1989. Yeah, and this is covered in depth in the New York Times, in fact, on the front page of the New York Times International Edition. And I know a lot of British journalists and a lot of British people sometimes feel the Americans, particularly the Times, has a very bad take on Britain and, and really does want to uh, bag it whenever it can. I think in this instance, it's very fair The nature and widespread um, uh, coverage of these strikes, particularly in the lead up to Christmas, is what just about everyone I know is talking about. And I was standing in a very, very, very lengthy queue at Royal Mail the other day and the two people in front of me, one who was very loudly telling anyone who'd listened that she was an old-fashioned socialist, was in complete agreement with the guy next to her saying, you know, people should not be allowed to strike like this just before Christmas. It's really unfair on people. And there's a very delicate balancing act that unions have to strike. But so too does the government. And today we're seeing in the Times that they're going to call in soldiers to cover for border force strikes at Heathrow and Gatwick airports just before Christmas and also carried in these uh, reports is this warning to people that perhaps you should reconsider travelling this Christmas. Now, I don't know about you, but if you go and look on any airfare uh, in the Christmas period for the last six months, they've been astronomical because all anyone wants to do after the pandemic is go and reconnect with their loved ones, whether they be abroad or up and down the country. And don't forget, Georgie, It's only two years ago since we had that horrible Christmas where we're all told, actually, no, you have to stay at home now and whatever you've bought, whatever food you have, throw it in the bin. Yeah, I mean, there is a simple solution, which is just for the government to agree to pay people in line with inflation. That is, but that would also have, according to the government's argument, and and many economists back this up, that would also lead to a further spiralling of inflation. And the government is simply arguing it doesn't have the money. It paid out a lot of money during the pandemic in furlough. Of course, a lot of these people are key workers who worked right through the pandemic, particularly in the NHS and ambulance workers. Uh, It would have worked triple loads, if not quadruple loads of their normal work. So it's a very difficult balancing act for both the government and the unions. And of course, the poor old public caught up in it all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let's go to South Korea, where you're not as old as you think. 
I love this story. I had no idea, Georgina, that when you're born in South Korea, you're automatically aged one. Now, that's, of course, not the case everywhere else. We're zero and then we become one 365 days after we're born. And so South Korea is now passing a law that's going to correct that. But in the process of doing that, all South Koreans are about to become a year younger. So this may be the secret to youth after all, Georgina. Let's just wind back our birth dates every year. I think that's an extremely good idea. Uh, Latika, very many thanks for joining us. That's Latika Burke there. And this is The Globalist. Russia's war against Ukraine is not only killing soldiers and citizens, destroying buildings and vital infrastructure, but attempting to obliterate Ukrainian culture too. PEN America, the writer's human rights organisation, has released a new report together with PEN Ukraine, entitled Ukrainian Culture Under Attack, Erasure of Ukrainian Culture in Russia's War Against Ukraine. Coinciding with the release of this report, PEN America sent a delegation to Ukraine, including prominent writers Barbara Demick, Dave Eggers and Peter Godwin. Peter is a past president of PEN America, a writer and a former human rights lawyer. And in the spirit of full disclosure, he's also my brother. He joins us on the line from Poland now. Peter, can I say, as the host of this programme, it's lovely to have you with us and as your sister, how glad I am that you've crossed the border. Thank you. Uh, Tell us more about the purpose of your visit. PEN America, together with PEN Ukraine, have been working on this report for some time, looking at the erasure, the Russian erasure of Ukrainian culture, both in the areas under Russian occupation and via the attacks on the rest of Ukraine. And there's there's a definite pattern to this, an attempt to suppress Ukrainian culture. Um, And we put it all together in a report and came to really launch the report together with PEN Ukraine. And what did you see while you were there? How, How is Russia attempting to physically do this? Well, obviously, we didn't have physical access this in this trip to the parts of Ukraine that are under Russian occupation, but we have had reports from there. We've had people in there and we've had, we, that's all in the report. What we did see is a lot of the physical destruction of libraries and theatres and other places of culture and also the, the experiences. We've got the experiences of writers themselves in the occupational areas where they've clearly been targeted and singled out. And how's Russia trying to manipulate culture and identity through education? Well, this is nothing new, of course. I mean, it's been going on for centuries, essentially, where um, Russian culture has been elevated as essentially an imperial or colonial culture and Ukrainian culture has been suppressed and it's been done through education. It's been done through all sorts of different cultural manipulation. I think what, what I came away with, my main sort of take home was what an an extraordinary own goal this has been on the part of Putin that in in an attempt to destroy Ukrainian identity, really, and that's what it is. It's nothing less than an attempt uh, to destroy Ukrainian identity through its culture, that what he's in fact managed to achieve is an extraordinary blossoming of Ukrainian culture. I mean, you know, we we went to things like 
classical concerts, which were done in held in darkened halls by candlelight um, and readings. There's there's an extraordinary blossoming of Ukrainian culture uh, in response to this attempt to suppress it. And what moved you most during your visit? I mean, I have to say there's something just utterly shocking. I know you've seen the pictures on TV and, and, and photographs, things, but there's something utterly shocking about seeing a high-rise block of flats that has been um, devastated by bombing and by, by um, high explosive artillery. Uh, the, 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 the destruction, especially in places like Bukha and Irpin, um, as the Russians tried to take Kyiv at the beginning of the war, is, is quite extraordinary. Um, but I think I was most moved by the spirit of the people. I mean, be a bit, be, there were several air raid warnings while we were there. We were in the middle of a of an interview at the National Museum of, of um, Ukraine when one of them went off and we just carried the inter- interview on down in the bomb shelter. Um, uh, people of very, um, Ukrainians have got an enormous spirit of resolve, it seemed to me. Um, and I found that the most moving thing of all. Now, you've been in war zones all over the world as a, a foreign correspondent. How does this differ from other conflict zones? I mean, it, it's really extraordinary to see a, a, a big city that has been used as target practice, that has been, that it, it's something, I, I don't know why this should be. I mean, most of the conflicts I realise that I've covered um, have been sort of in the countryside and rural areas one way or another, in small towns. I've never really seen this kind of urban destruction. And there's something just visually so graphic about it, so extraordinary that in the, you know, in this century that we should still be doing this, that we should still be bombing cities. Absolutely. Uh, Finally, Peter, how can the international community best support the preservation of Ukrainian culture? I mean, I think the Ukrainian people are going to need a lot of support um, going forward. I think that you know, if I'm if I can draw an analogy, it's like you know when you're first in an accident or if you're very very ill, you're rushed to the ER. It's very dramatic. There's lots of adrenaline, attention, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But eventually, Ukraine is going to move, you know, into from acute into chronic, and and there's going to be a temptation from the rest of the world for our attention to drift away and to to go onto other things. And I think that it's really important going forward in the coming months and, and indeed years that we keep up a level of support for for this Ukrainian effort. I think that's the, the, the most important thing that the West can do. Peter Godwin, thank you very much for joining us. And Peter's memoirs about our family and our joint past, including Mukiwa and When a Crocodile Eats the Sun, are available at all good bookshops. You're with The Globalist on Monocle 24. It's time to talk business now with David Hodari, who's Monocle's business editor. I'm laughing because he's just adjusted his chair and practically disappeared under the table. <laughs> David, are you all right? I am okay. It's a little bit uh, more of a loose chair than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> Dear, oh dear, I think we should talk about the energy markets uh, and oil companies because, of course, they were at the top of the news agenda in the months after Russia invaded Ukraine. And now they're back at the top of the business news agenda. Why is that? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. The seeds of this week's energy stories were sown at the start of the year when Russia invaded Ukraine. And the companies that pump oil and the ones that trade it around the world are 
are companies that have benefited greatly from the huge swings uh, in commodities prices this year. So Trafigura Group, which is a very big commodities trader, they're a competitor of companies like Glencore, who are huge, uh, announced record annual profits of $7 billion yesterday. Um, that's double last year's record. Um, and essentially, Trafigura is a, one of the companies that, that makes money from different financial contracts as prices change over time. And then you've also had uh, windfall profits for big oil companies, the ones that pump it and sell it. So ExxonMobil, for example, announced its highest ever quarterly profits a few weeks ago. And there's quite a lot of controversy about what ExxonMobil's doing with those windfall profits. Absolutely. So Exxon this week announced uh, a $50 billion share buyback programme, which is effectively a scheme to reward shareholders and pay them dividends. Um, our moves like that one, uh, Exxon isn't the first company to do so. I think Chevron did something similar. Um, a few weeks ago, have attracted quite a lot of controversy uh, and scrutiny, not least from the US President Joe Biden, who in October said words to the effect of they shouldn't be using their profits to buy back stock or, or reward shareholders while a war is going on. Uh, instead, they should be investing it in uh, American energy security. Uh, is his implication. Yeah. I mean, and these big profits for oil companies don't necessarily mean that all parts of the energy sector are doing well. Uh, I mean, there is news that Shell's home energy company sought billions from its parent company. Yeah, that's true. So uh, obviously Royal Dutch Shell is a huge oil company, but they also own a a subsidiary that sells energy to homes. Um, And that company uh, in, in the UK has sought loans of nearly £1.2 billion from, from its big oil trading parent company since the start of the year. It highlights the continuing financial pressure on even some of the UK's biggest electricity providers. Um, and it highlights how Britain's energy supply market is very fragile in the wake of the Ukraine war. Um, a lot of companies in that sector have gone out of business this year. More than 30 suppliers have gone bust uh, since the start of 2021. For example, Bulb Energy was, was one of the biggest um, and it's cost taxpayers as much as £6.5 billion. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, let's move on to a different story, albeit one that's still adjacent to energy. Um, Air New Zealand has raised its profit forecasts. What reason is that? Yeah, so, so that's right. So this is the story that Air New Zealand uh, has announced that it expects its profits for the first half of next year to be almost 50% higher than they previously forecast. The Kiwi flag carrier has said that there's been a bounce in interest for domestic and international flights, but also um, a fall in jet fuel prices has helped. A lot of energy prices are starting to drop uh, as um, worries about the global economy start to seep in. And is that the issue specific to Air New Zealand? Are we seeing evidence of it elsewhere in the aviation industry? So it seems to be a, a, an industry-wide thing. I mean, it's, it's interesting that it's happening to Air New Zealand right now. This is a country, obviously, that was long isolated and it's a tourism-dependent one, so this will be a relief to Air New Zealand and New Zealand the economy there in general. Um, but it, just yesterday as well, the Airbus CEO, Guillaume Fourie, uh, said he expects um, uh, a big boost for wide-body jet sales. Wide-body jet is, is a big jumbo jet like uh, the Airbus A380 or the old uh, Boeing 747. I'm, I'm not quite an aviation expert, so I don't know the, the new model. Um, <clears throat> but, um, yeah, I mean, Air New Zealand... Uh, 
based its projections off just three quarters of pre-pandemic demand in December. And uh, it does seem as though people are finally starting to enjoy flying again, even though a lot of those companies are still struggling to decarbonise their fuel. Right, right. Uh, let's end with a, a music story for our, our final uh, business hit this morning. Uh, Hypnosis, uh, that's the Music Investment Trust. It spent hundreds of millions on the back catalogues of artists from Leonard Cohen to Shakira, but now it's had to stop buying rights. Why is that? Yeah, so um, this company owns, this fund owns loads of musicians uh, back catalogues owns Neil Young's Heart of Gold but unfortunately stock market investors seem to uh, seem to disagree with uh, that for the value of the company um they uh they think basically the fund's overpaid uh for its back catalog which the fund values at 2 billion dollars but um the fact that the share prices have been dropping uh suggests that people disagree um they're essentially hypnosis is quite famous in the finance world because they pioneered the use of song copyrights as an asset class you know like stocks or or bonds but this in this case it's songs um and that was all well and good when the economic situation was quite rosy interest rates were quite low and songs generated uh cash but now the economic situation has changed interest rates have changed and so have the um so is the the ability to for those songs to bring in money. Mm. And I'm sure, sorry, with, with tech uh, advancement, it's quite easy to just download songs and not pay anyone at all, isn't it? It absolutely is. But I think the bigger question is that investors are... The big problem is, is here is that it's very difficult to put a price on the value of a song. Yeah. And although funds like Hypnosis have tried, um, their methods of doing so are quite opaque. So um, they've hired new investors, but... Who, who have sort of reassured in, uh, shareholders that uh, the songs are worth what they say. Yeah. David, yeah. I want to play you a snatch of a song. Sure. And uh, I don't know if you recognise that, but that is the introduction to a song called Christmas Eve. Uh, it's by an artist called Tatsuro Yamashita. Now, what would you value that at? Oh, I don't think you can put a price on Monocle's favourite uh, Christmas song film. <laughs> I'm very glad you realise that's what it is. Now, do you know the words? I'm afraid I don't. This is my first year here at Monocle. Oh, silent night. Silent night. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> David, the reason that you have to learn that and all of our listeners uh, have to learn that is, as you say, it's our favourite song here, our favourite Christmas song at Monocle, but it will be played, I can guarantee it, at our Christmas market that's taking place here at Midori House on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, we always have a sing-along of it a little bit later on, perhaps after quite a lot of glue vine has been taken. Uh, so really hope to see London uh, visitors or residents at our Christmas market at Midori House tomorrow. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers Christy O'Grady and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, our studio manager Steph Chungu and David Hadari, our business editor, for joining us. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and uh, The Globus will be back with you on Monday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.